The following is a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. What a weird color that wine is. <laughs> it's got saffron on the bottom of it. <laughs> Rosé-ish. It's Grenache Rosé. Oh, that explains it then. It's 20 It's got some age on it. And it's 2020. Yeah. Yeah. 2020? Well, I hope I can still taste it. 420. 420? Yeah. 420, 2020? 420, 2020, we were definitely not passing joints to each other. <laughs> well, hey, everybody. Welcome to the winemakers. I'm John Myers. No, that was the time of a whole new personal group joints. Personal yeah. joints, right. We've got Thank Tristan you. hanging in for Brian, who's on special assignment. And, of course, we have Sam Katuri and Bart Hansen and our special guest. Well, first of all, we are coming to Brian, you. Brian Casey's from, hovering around. Yeah. We're coming to you from Grateful Dead headquarters in Sonoma, California <laughs> on 420. So uh, I have no idea what's going to happen later. However, I will introduce hey, you. Have an idea of what's going to happen later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I'm all all prepared. So. Yeah, but does 420 really mean anything if it happens on a daily basis anyway? <laughs> you know, well, mind blown. We're, we're, we're so on brand and off topic. Um, I had a time in my life where on 420 I didn't smoke pot just to, like, you know, really? be different. Yeah, just to be different. <laughs> or at least I tried to not. Yeah. That's what you told yourself when you got up in right, the morning. I woke up in the morning, I'm like, oh, well, and then, you know. And then your dad let's, calls and your boss calls. Let's welcome our guest, <laughs> Sasha Perlman. You're the director of fire forward here in the area and and there is no audubon canyon ranch right actually <laughs> there is it's there is the, the audubon canyon ranch is out by bolinas right yeah it is now the martin griffin preserve uh, yes there you <laughs> go. it got rebranded but anyway fire forward a nonprofit here in, in the area and of course barbara gorderer who actually connected everybody here so wave it Barbara over in the corner. Hi, Barbara. Hi, Barbara. <laughs> She's sitting there on her computer hanging out. She's working. Yeah, she with, a glass of, with a glass of rosé. Why not? <laughs> How is the 2020 rosé tasting, you guys? Oh, we got Sounds an awesome. Great. There you right. go. Yeah. Well, uh, welcome, everybody. So uh, there you go. What a fun day. you got a beautiful day here to talk about fire forward. Perfect. It's yeah. beautiful And Tristan is here because he's done a, a bunch of controlled fires anyway, so... Yeah, he's 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 our brains today. So. <laughs> no, Doctor Sasha Brolman is our brains today. <laughs> they brought out the big. You gun. didn't yeah. tell me it was Doctor. Yes, Doctor Sasha Brolman. I don't go by Doctor. <laughs> you I don't can't lead really with that. Too well. <laughs> Hi, Doc. You uh, your PhD is in fire science, right? Wildland fire science with a focus on fire ecology and prescribed fire use for benefiting ecosystems. Wow. Yeah. I've never even heard of that. Amazing. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. So you, you must go nuts in the fire season around here. Uh, go nuts. That's a, <laughs> there are lots of ways to interpret that. Um, definitely a busy year round actually doing prescribed burns. And then uh, even during wildfire season, sometimes prescribed burning as well, depending. But um, yeah, over time, wildfire season has had different meanings for me because um, 
Yeah, I spent some years on a hotshot crew and detail with the Forest Service on wildfires in the summer sometimes. And then, what an yeah. experience! <laughs> I mean, that's got to be just the ultimate horror show. Uh, you know, once you're in that work, it's kind of like any emergency response work you do what you're trained to do, right? So, uh, you're you're there with your team uh, of colleagues, and you're having a good time. You all trust each other, know each other, and you know what your job is, and um, you're just taking care of it. Yeah, it's not too bad. I mean, in wild and fire uh, with the Forest Service, a lot of the time we're out in kind of the more wilderness type areas, so. Uh, it's beautiful. Well, you make it sound a little easier than I'm sure it is. I mean, I can't imagine me <laughs> I, doing it, Sam. So. I will say from my very much limited experience in this, um, that there's nothing better than when a hotshot crew shows up. When you see the hotshot crew driving through in a, when you're, you know, have snuck behind evacuation lines uh, and you see the hotshot crew show up, you're like, all right, well, it's better than, you know, us with our shovels and hose and garden hoses. Um, that that's like when when the when the Forest Service <laughs> hotshot crew shows up, then you know it's like a serious thing and it's getting taken care of, right? I mean that's that was my feeling about it, I, you know. Um, so did I hear you say sneaking behind fire lines? <laughs> I think the statute of limitations is up. I don't know what it is, uh, but I've heard that people do that somehow. <laughs> Does he have a tie dyed T shirt on? <laughs> yes, yes, running through <laughs> pretty much. That's that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, is it really sneaking if you just know a way that they don't know, right? Yes, you know. it is. I think so. <laughs> I think I do play Blue Believe. Uh, Sasha, you grew up in Doctor Doctor. <laughs> um, you grew up in Temecula. I did. Um, doesn't to me strike as like a wild land. Although there's lots of fires in Southern California. How do you end up? uh doing the work that you do yeah actually temecula um you know it sits in the bottom of a valley surrounded by chaparral covered hillsides okay. so uh while my home itself was never threatened growing up wildfire was a big part of what i grew up seeing and experiencing uh we had smoke days instead of snow days uh we had like you know i'd go outside and catch white ash in my hand like it was snowflakes it'd be covering the lawn the lawn would just be pure white um and you know as a teenager i would go with my friends and we'd drive these backcountry roads that we knew and we'd watch the wildfires burn wow. um so it was a big thing for me all my friends were evacuated at some point so we'd go and help them evacuate uh, so yeah i had night terrors as a kid about wildfire and it was a, it was a big deal so um you know teenagers uh kind of didn't really know what the options were for career paths, but once I found this as a career path, it was a done deal. From the, from the well, so how did that start? Did you start working at a fire department? No, I actually uh, I did community college down south and uh, was told to go take a, like a docent training at a nature preserve that I used to go to. And uh, they had a, a guest speaker who was an indigenous man from the area who told us for the first time that I'd ever heard about it, about how prescribed fire was used to steward that preserve for thousands of years. And that was this mind blowing moment to me that like I was 19 at the time and I'd never heard of the benefit and value and meaning of fire on the landscape to the plants and people uh, and animals. And then 
all of a sudden here at 19 years old, I hear that for the first time when I'd been terrified of fire since I was a little kid. Um, so that, that really struck me. And I, at the time I was taking an environmental science class, it was just so depressing. I just, uh, I felt like there was no chance that we could get through like my lifetime and still be thriving as a human race. Right. Um, and so this little glimpse felt like something I could jump That's into. That's still questionable, you know. <laughs> yeah. Whether we're going to make it It through. is still questionable. But, uh, you know, I feel like now I have a sense of purpose, at least if I'm going to be here. I have like this thing that I'm trying to make a difference in. So, so I, I and I don't want to stop you from telling us how you got there. But one thing can we come back to is I'd like to hear what that first introduction, what he said to you guys and, you know, kind of what it was to hit those points. Yeah. So, you know, this was well over a decade now uh, ago. So uh, the details are a little fuzzy on his specific points, but he, I do remember it was That's the first right, time. That's right. The statue of limitations. Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> the, it was the first time I ever heard about uh, fire dependent flowers. So in chaparral ecosystems, there are flowers that'll wait dormant in the soil for over a hundred years for a fire to burn through. And then that opens the seed coat and you get these beautiful wildflower blooms that you know no one in our lifetime has seen yeah Yeah. and uh that just shocked me i thought that was so incredible that there's that much dependence on fire in the ecosystem that some plants just cannot exist without it um and then we've got vernal pools that up there that without fire those all of those wildflowers get overrun by annual grasses Mm. um they also had oak woodlands up there, and he was talking about stewarding those oak woodlands to reduce the pest infestation so the acorns would be edible um, and harvestable. So all, all of these purposes, um, and I'm, I'm sure many more that he talked about right. that I don't remember now. I just wanted you to hit kind of the basics. Well, and, yeah. and that's why you're here today. I mean, this is a wine podcast. Why are we talking to somebody who does prescribed burns? And from the wine standpoint, you know, especially in the last five years, everybody talks about smoke damage and smoke taint and wildfires in in the wine industry. Um, But what you're doing is fire that is good for the wine industry. Um, And so that's why we brought you here today. Um, Will you just kind of talk more about the prescribed burn process a little bit um, and how that you know, good fire kind of differs from, from bad fire, both, uh, you know, as we experience it as humans, but also maybe how the, you know, the wildlands experience it. Yeah. That was a big question. Sorry. No, you can break break it into parts. I think I've got at least some of it. And I I think a good place to start is a little backstory here. I think we, we have all realized now in California that there is no, no fire option. Like suppression does not work. It cannot work. And none of us thrive under a suppression model. Right. What that, all that does is really is. is Will you just say what, what suppression model means? Yeah. <laughs> so Start from the beginning, <laughs> you know, basics, yeah. basics. Uh, so in the last 150 or so years, uh, we've been living under this model that, uh, you know, we need to put out all fires. There was a 10 a.m. rule for a while. All fires should be put out by 10 a.m. the next morning. Uh, <laughs> So just like absolutely eliminate fire from the landscape, remove indigenous people, you know, like uh, make it a felony to to light fire uh, so that we criminalize it and uh, essentially just created 
this system where we want nothing to burn. We expect that we can keep anything from burning at all. And uh, what we found is that that accumulates a lot of dead material on the landscape. And what that ends up doing is one, it 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 degrades ecosystems, but it also means that when a wildfire burns and we can't catch it because we cannot catch them all and we know that, uh, we get much more dramatic fire behavior. And nowadays we have that being coupled with climate change where our fire seasons are much longer than they used to be, or even some would argue year round. Uh, And we have more extreme weather events, like stronger winds with, uh, you know, our rains come in big pulses and then we get big dry spells uh, with hotter and drier conditions. So uh, what we see as a result of all that suppression is much more dramatic fire behavior. And when those fires roll through, they're not benefiting people by any means, but they're also not benefiting the landscape anymore because they're burning outside of the natural behavior that those ecosystems are adapted to. Um, When we look at our ecosystems in California, most of them are adapted to very frequent low intensity prescribed fire or fire behavior. So uh, our oak woodlands, you know, tend to be somewhere in the every three years to every 15, maybe up to 20 years. Redwoods are in that same kind of range every four to 20 years. grasslands every three to five years at most. So when you start thinking about these numbers and how frequently each of these ecosystems are expected to see fire and have that be low, short flame lengths that move slowly through the forest floor kind of thing, um, we're way out of whack (laughs) for what we should be seeing in California. Um, And I've heard at some point the sort of deficit of fire in, in California. And I, those numbers are like mind boggling. I don't know if you know them off the top of your head, but like how much naturally needs to burn in California and how, you know, what that number is between what is actually burned and what needs to burn. Yeah. So, uh, I only remember some of these numbers off the top of my head, but I think I can pull some of them. So, uh, Prehistorically, so before the suppression era started uh, with colonization, we were seeing about two and a half million acres per year burning in California, um, which in, you know, about 10 years ago, that was equivalent of all of the fire burning across the U.S. in an extreme fire decade. And just in the last like five years, uh, you know, we had one wildfire season that matched that two and a half million acres with very different fire behavior from what that two and a half million acres was prehistorically. Um, So now we're getting bad enough with our wildfire seasons that they are matching that acreage, but we're not accomplishing the objectives at all or in most places, I should say with those. And what is that objective? So those objectives being, you know, seeing fire behavior shifting as it moves into different ecosystems and on different topographies across the landscape. So uh, if all of these landscapes were tended and had that fire return interval that they're adapted to, even in those more extreme weather conditions, we could see fire behavior, you know, maybe it has a big, like long flame lengths and moving fast through a chaparral. And then it hits an oak woodland and that fire behavior drops down. And then it, you know, moves into a forest and it's even more mellow. And then it picks up again when it hits the bottom of a south facing slope. So we would expect to see these kind of patches and mosaic patterns in fire behavior with fire moving through uh, well-tended ecosystems. But we don't see that right now. It sounds like there's a tremendous amount of science behind fire behavior. (laughs) It really does. There is. 
is. Yeah, there there have been quite a few people. PhDs I would say, even. yeah, yeah PhDs even. Uh, I would say there's thousands of years of traditional ecological knowledge, which is its own kind of science on fire behavior. And then, uh, definitely in the last eighty years, a lot of Western science diving into fire behavior as well. Well, and that's actually one of the first places that I heard about. Um, more sort of proactive prescribed burns was at uh, the eco farm conference that we do down in in monterey every year um and it was a native led group and i'm forgetting the name uh both of the tribe and of the organization that was kind of doing something i think similar to what fire forward is doing which is going to private landowners going to public lands and doing these burns the way that the native populations in California did for, you know, centuries, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, there are a couple things happening these days. There are still uh, tribes burning in California uh, across the state and especially a very active prescribed burn program in the tribes up in the Klamath. And then also through other pockets throughout the state. I think this was like Central Coast. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, And then there's this uh, model that's kind of spread from the Midwest, which you might be familiar with and has come into California in recent years called the Prescribed Burn Association model. And what that is, uh, you know, in the West or in the Midwest, that model is really ranchers coming together who are neighbors and helping each other do large blocks of prescribed burns as cooperative burning. And out here, we're seeing that prescribed burn association models are hugely diverse. And the one that we have in Northern Sonoma or in uh, the North Bay area, including Sonoma is the Good Fire Alliance. So that's the name of our prescribed burn association. And in our case, that's a 700 member community now of, of folks from all different backgrounds. So some of them are land managers, some of them work in the wine industry or grow grapes or work in vineyards, uh, picking grapes and harvesting. Uh, some are, you know, landowners who want to be putting fire on their own land. And some are like baristas or restaurant workers or computer coders or graphic designers who have been impacted by the traumas of the recent wildfires and want to contribute and reshape their relationship with fire. And these folks are coming together, gaining these skills as a community and then putting fire on the ground um, in that restorative process in community. And it's it's been hugely effective. And, and I would say uh, I see all the time these relationships with fire being healed from very traumatic experiences mm. to really beautiful relationships. That's yeah. awesome. I love that. I love that yeah. concept. I mean, we, you know, I don't think there's anybody at this table who doesn't feel some trauma from 17, from 2020, yeah. uh, and facing that head on and actually going out and, you know, supporting whether, you know, whether actually doing it or supporting somehow these, these efforts yeah. um, really has massive catharsis, right? Yeah. Is that a good word, Tristan? I mean, coming from a Midwestern background where fire is not such an existential threat year on year, but is slowly reintegrating into our sense of regenerative ecology, uh, growing up on an organic farm, um, having the opportunity to take part in several burns in the last few years. Um, Something I'd love to get to, Sasha, is like the the experiential aspect of actually conducting, and the name of the game is control here, controlled burns. Um, in California, how does it look like? What sort of team makeup do you have? I love the 
sort of uh, captain analogy of it, it's it's like a ship. Someone's got to be in charge at all times. And it's, uh, as my father's partner, who's a horticulturalist, always says, it's sort of um, top-down model. Um, how does that look for you guys on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, and you know, and I have, on that same question, I, I've been to a control burn and was in awe when you saw the fire kind of get up and going. And then I think it was when it hit a patch that they expected it, mm-hmm. but as being someone not ready for it, um, mm-hmm. it's, it's quite amazing. Um, and it makes you think about, you know, when it's out there. Um, so if you could add in some, you know, some thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I keep backtracking on these questions. So well, that's good. That's keep us on. Keep, yeah. us, keep us on track. A little bit please. of background. It's so up to you. my program, uh, we're a prescribed fire capacity building program, and and kind of have really stepped into a prescribed fire training center role. So we're a hub where all these community members are coming together to get the training and knowledge that allows them to then be able to be on the fire line and implement these skills and build that experience base. In in prescribed fire, we are, and in fire in general, uh, we have this saying that you're always a student of fire. You're never like, you're never done learning and growing these skills, and that's true for all of us. Um, and so my program's been uh, going out and teaching these community members. I think we've te- we've taught about 500 people now to uh, certified about 500 people to the basic wildland firefighter level, which is the national standard for being on the fire line. Um, and that's just so that we have a foundation for all of these folks who are coming out. And then when we do a prescribed burn, uh, some of the burns require that basic training as the standard uh, based on complexity or landowner preference, and then others don't, depending yeah, if it's lower risk or in the middle of winter um, or the landowner feels comfortable without that in there. And then we structure the, the burn team so that uh, we have what we call span of control, kind of to your point, Tristan. So um, we work in teams of three to seven, ideally five, and then those like those burn teams will have a squad leader, and those squad leaders have a crew lead, and the engines work for a holding boss, uh, and the crew might work for a firing boss, and then we have a burn boss. So um, there is a, a formal structure so that we have accountability for everyone, and in our community, we mostly call that the span of accountability. It goes both ways and we're a community burning together, right? So uh, rather than that kind of militant top down, it's still uh, organized in that chain of command structure, but we're we're saying like everyone's accountable to each other and we want to make sure we're working as a team. If you see something that seems odd, say something about it, ask a question. Um, let's make sure we're all learning and all contributing. Um, and everyone has knowledge and skills to contribute, right? They may just be different and more diverse. Um, and then there's this uh, long planning and permitting process. It, I say long, but it actually sometimes comes together really quickly if there's a really uh, ready partner with a really good burn unit option and they're engaged and willing to put in the effort. Sometimes it's a one to two month turnaround from uh, and it, a question about whether they, there's an opportunity to burn to getting fire on the ground. And other times it takes a year, year and a half or even longer, depending on what the situation is. Um, and so, yeah, we, we reach out to the local fire departments, we bring together the Good Fire Alliance community, we organize and structure that, and then 
there's a morning briefing and we start a test fire first. And that's where we identify what the fire behavior is likely to do and decide whether we're going to meet the objectives that we laid out. We always have objectives when we're doing a prescribed burn. Otherwise, you're basically just an arsonist, right? So <laughs> you have to really know why you're putting fire on the ground if you're going to light that match. Uh, so we always have goals and objectives Glad really clearly defined. That, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you, permits are a distinguishing feature there, too. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Between a prescribed burn and an arsonist yeah. is a permit. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> permits and objectives, really important things to have. Um, I was just going to ask Sam, but you mentioned arson. What are the main reasons, the top three or four reasons for fire start in California now? Uh, so actually, in general, I think people are the main cause of fire, and uh, it is usually unintentional, right? That's the that's the more usually, frequent one. Right. Yeah, usually unintentional. Although arson is definitely a part of it, but you know, uh, a trailer chain dragging the trailer along the chain highway drag is like one that's so so common, so common, and people have no idea. And then you just keep driving along. Yeah. You don't even know that you started a fire. Yeah, and. and I, and I've seen that before, and you get I get so angry. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Anytime you if see, you have that trauma too, it? yeah. yeah, yeah, it's rough. So, yeah. uh, so it's just a spark from just be a spark. You know, I mean, at this point, people throw cigarettes out their windows anymore. I don't know. Probably, I they think do. it happens. Does yeah, anybody smoke anymore? They do. <laughs> yeah. Cigarettes? Cigarettes? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I was, yeah, it was behind someone just the other day. Yeah. Yeah, oh. it happens. Lightning also, but not in our region so much. Right. You know, we had we have the anomaly years that are decades apart from each other where we get a bunch of lightning that actually has ground strikes, but mostly lightning is up in the Sierras and not down in this part of California. So mostly human uh or human related ignitions like power lines, things like that, of course. So, you know, we've seen um we've seen a lot more hoofed animals in our vineyards this year than ever um and it's been great and i've also seen and we we have past friend of the pod who you know they graze they graze animals out in the forested areas um and and there's a p particular place i'm thinking of they've had some goats in there for a while and they've made huge inroads but it still looks like it would go it still looks like it would burn um, is that an appropriate time to bring in a control burn? Because I imagine you don't want to get into those really, really poorly managed properties, right? How, how do you, how do you help out someone like that? That is a great question. I'm glad you asked. So, uh, goats are awesome for reducing brush that's kind of in that interlayer between the forest floor and the canopy. Right. Um, but surface fuels really drive fire behavior and surface fuels are the the dead material that's above the soil surface but uh, on the ground and uh you know goats are not eating the dead material on the forest floor they're eating the brush and so uh they can be super excellent for opening up that understory it definitely makes it easier for igniters to then walk through for a controlled burn and it drops fire behavior nicely you get shorter flame lengths because the fuels are compacted and low um so absolutely after goats go through is a great time for a prescribed burn i would say though uh first entry treatment using prescribed fire that's what we call it where a, a landscape or a, a forest has been unmanaged no treatment whatsoever and then we do prescribed fire as the first thing uh can actually be really effective and it's 
very cost effective too. Um, the main thing that we have to do for those burns is, well, there are two things to consider for those burns. One, uh, you still have to prep the perimeter. So we're looking at usually something like 30 feet around the edge where we are trying to get rid of any heavy accumulations of fuel. So like logs, dead trees that are still standing stumps. We want to get those out of that first 30 feet and distribute it in. And then usually also doing some pruning up of the, the canopy, things like that, just so you're getting minimal fire behavior and minimum uh, amount of time that fire is burning in that perimeter to help with that control piece. And then the other piece is uh, we have to work with the landowners on what they're looking for, because uh, if a landowner is doing prescribed fire as their first century treatment, it's aesthetically not amazing immediately because you're going to leave a bunch of dead standing material in the understory after that first burn. But your fire risk is immediately reduced because the surface fuels are gone. Um, and you just have this kind of scraggly looking, dead looking understory. And if you just do another burn or two burns a couple years later, then you can end up with that beautiful kind of park like atmosphere. But for a few years in between, it looks kind of meh, but your fire risk is gone. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. We've seen those properties where mm -hmm. landowners have gone on, gone in and cleaned up all the dead stuff. And um, it does. <laughs> it looks like a park. You well, know? And then you also see, well, I see this a lot in that thinking of a place that you probably drive by all the time on Orwam Road where um, a year or two ago they went in aggressively cut out all the understory and, and you know, little trees, dead trees. Um, but it's actually come back harder and faster, okay. especially with this winter where it's like, you know, now it's all, you know, oil oil brushing right. yeah. and and uh bay growing you know because they had access to more sunshine right. and yeah, all those right, things right. all of a sudden like and that's probably a great time to go in and try and burn that out a little bit right it can be so there are a couple of things here too uh what we see is uh, a lot of people want to immediately have that park-like look and they bring in a chipper right. and they chip all that material and they leave the chips on the floor and what you've done is just compounded the surface fuels and you've made it this compact dry layer in the middle of summer so that or by the end of summer if a fire burns there it's really slow extremely hot burning fire it just girdles all the trees and kills all the trees you left behind and it's mm. really hard to fight fire in that thick like incredible heat and so uh, i really advise when i'm working with landowners like please do not chip and leave the chips. You can chip and take the chips elsewhere, but don't chip and leave the chips on what about, site. What about just, just broadcasting, broadcasting? Yeah, broadcasting. yeah if, if you, if you want to, yeah, it's yeah. doing the same thing, unless you mm -hmm. can really make it a very thin layer right. or you're in an extremely wet climate right. or snowy climate. Uh, in this area, we're just not getting consistent enough rain and enough of it to really decompose those chips faster than the risk of wildfire mm -hmm. could show up. Um, and it makes it much harder to do a prescribed burn. So uh, I like to tell people if you're going to do something that's not uh, prescribed fire first, then you know you can do a lop and uh, like pile. I like mm -hmm. to tell people to burn piles so they're not adding to the the fuels on the surface. Um, sometimes lop and scatter can be appropriate, but it has to be a pretty light touch mm -hmm. so that they're not adding too much to that right. surface fuel. Right. Don't want to exacerbate the existing problem. Yeah, exactly. Can you speak to a little bit of how this season is shaping up with the multiple atmospheric rivers we've had across the regions in which you do prescribed burns? Yeah, it's so complicated. <laughs> um, so 
you know, heavy rain years often mean tall grass crop. And I hear a lot of this narrative in, in recent years where I hear, you know, oh, tall grass crop means big wildfire season. And that's not really a direct correlation. What tall grass crop means is that fire behavior in your grasslands when people are doing initial attack on that and and the suppression industry, um, that that's going to be more fire behavior for firefighters to put out with a hose. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not that's not a driver of mega fires, right? Yeah. We know that like these big wind events, these uh, these big intense weather events are the mega fire drivers in this area. Um, and those are contributed to by both the weather and very dry fuels. And, you know, partway through this season, I was 100% under the impression uh, we are still very much at risk of those fuels being very dry this summer um, and contributing to major fire possibilities. Um, after, you know, all of the rain that came in, we did see an improvement in the drought index. So there is a chance that that'll be better this year. Um, I Seeing that improvement in the drought index was a, a huge hallelujah to me. Uh, but it's also going to depend on how hot and dry the summer is. So there's, you know, we got to look ahead at what are we facing in terms of summer weather behavior. Um, what are they saying about how many last winters do we need in a row to get us completely out of the drought? I mean, I mean, you, I, you know, those numbers or anything, what Sasha was referring to the, the California, like, uh, I guess the national weather service puts this together, um, basically has the entire state of California out of drought after this winter. Um, but if we get another winter, like, you know, 2020 or something like that, we'll probably go right back into it by the time, you know, by by our 420 show next, you know, 2024, yeah. um, we'll be back into drought if if the it's sort just of a regular of, patterns right. exist. So right. if we get another winter like last winter, um, I, I don't I don't know how much sort of bankability there is as far as whether we're in drought or not in drought. Um, I mean, I know that there's been a lot of like groundwater recharge and including you know some very intentional groundwater recharge in the Central Valley and stuff like that. Um, but another dry winter. And I think we're back to the same conversation that we had these last four or five years. Yeah. And maybe not where we were last year. Right. I right. mean, like or where we were maroon on the right. map, extreme yeah. drought. Yeah. Right. Extreme. So we'll, we'll start going back. We'll start doing that again though. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. What this year tells me though or if you're from my kind of mental framework is that this is a great year to do some really good prescribed burning because we're not in that drought there right. is more moisture in the trees there's more moisture in the soil and right. in the death right. layer so this is a great time to get out there and like reduce the amount of dead accumulated fuel while we have that moisture so that in future years when we don't have that moisture that's you know been treated <laughs> right. and taken care of so so let's say there's some thoughtful a thoughtful landowner out there listening to our show and he's like i want to i want to do something about this on my property that i haven't done a good job on are you guys a resource for them 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, our program does all this training and capacity building. And part of that is also just getting fire on the ground. One, so that we can put smoke in the air and have these conversations about the importance of prescribed burn and how they're done and how they can be done diligently and safely. And to provide training opportunities on the ground for folks and to just get the work done. <laughs> um, it it would not, our program would not be meaningful if we were only talking about prescribed burning and not doing it. Um, so we, we do private landowner site visits and uh, kind of consultations. We usually do a, a pre-screening phone call to talk with them about what they've got. And then if it sounds like there's a viable opportunity there, we'll go out to their, their site and we'll talk with them about, um, you know, what are your objectives for prescribed fire and what we see as the objectives. So we can kind of do some landowner education there and collaboration. And then uh, what are the containment line opportunities? So, uh, with all of these prescribed burns, we're always looking for uh, really good containment line options. And that can either be a pre-existing road or trail, or we can create the line that we need uh, to make a prescribed burn feasible. And it's it's really done in partnership because this is community and cooperative-based burning. Um, it, it takes some effort from the landowner and contribution, and uh, it definitely takes community right. contribution. And then our program is bringing in a lot of that prescribed fire-specific expertise. Yeah. How many are there in how many controlled burns are in this particular area? How many would you like to see and what would be perfect? Yeah. So uh, I think last year our program did something like 45 prescribed burns um, in the year. And I think we're probably doing more in this coming year and uh, looking to do more that are larger acreages as well. Um, and, you know, we do prescribe burns. It, it, it's interesting. Acreage is really challenging in this region uh, as a metric of success because we have so many different ecosystems in such small areas in this region and then such kind of interesting terrain. Uh, and then the landowner parcels are, you know, wide range from very small parcels of intermix and interface uh, homes with wildlands on them and then very large uh, properties. So I would love to be seeing uh, much more prescribed burning. While our program in this past year conducted 45 burns um, it, somewhere around there, I think our partners who we've trained over the last five years have done another 35 on top of that. So we're already seeing a lot of the benefit and impact of all the people that we've been training. Um, but I'd love to just keep seeing that scale up. Uh, it should be a lot more than that. And part of what we're doing this year to move that direction is um, we're planning a prescribed fire training exchange, which is a 10-day event of cooperative burning in the region that's going to take place in September. Um, and so we're going to be kind of moving into that uh, summer burn window, the part of summer where there's usually relatively cool weather um, and uh, you know, not so much of those extreme weather events. And sometimes there's even a little bit of rain in September and going to be trying to reduce those fuels in that kind of later part of the summer using that effort. Is fire forward statewide or is this just local? We're a local program for the most part right now. So our implementation is really uh, tons in Sonoma County and then some in Marin, some in Mendocino, Lake and Napa counties, but really Sonoma County is Kind of our home base with Marin being a second runner-up. Will you talk uh, I mean, um, a little bit about the sort of the program, the training part of the program and the education? Because that's a place where uh, it seems like, you know, you've already talked about it scaling a little bit, but um, starts in Sonoma County, but can really be statewide, regional, 
as you as you build that program, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I will say we we're on a lot of committees and um, policy efforts that go more at that statewide level or even beyond the state. Um, but our trainings, uh, we yeah, we're sponsored to teach National Wildfire Coordinating Group courses, which is the national federal certification system for fire. And right now our program teaches, I think, about eight different courses or nine different courses um, in that system. So we can we can teach those formal certifications to folks. And that includes everything from basic wildland firefighter to wildland fire chainsaws uh, to pumps and hoses and how to set up those systems for fire um, ignition operations, teaching people what the patterns are and how to moderate fire behavior using your ignition patterns on any given burn to meet objectives. Right. And then we teach a burn boss class, the California State Certified Burn Boss class in our program as well. I, um, I could a, do the I could do the pump and hose class for sure. <laughs> well, I, you know, don't want a lot of things on my resume, but burn boss would be a dope thing to have on your resume right what is a what is a burn boss how do, and how do you and how do you get that can i just call my well it's got to be better than just going out and tossing a match into your woods out back i mean you know yes. please don't please don't do that at home no. yeah you know there there are families with that institutional knowledge tristan you might have grown up in a family that knows how to do prescribed burns and all these certifications are kind of meaningless right i don't know some degree but yeah yeah uh, so lots of families like that out there that have that institutional knowledge just in the family uh, or traditional ecological knowledge right there are those pathways but for those of us who weren't lucky enough to grow up in those families or systems uh, these certification courses are a helpful and formal way to show the knowledge and training that you've gotten and then we have these processes that we use from the forest service or uh federal landscape as well that are called task books, um, where you can work your way through a task book with a trainer that's formally evaluating you in all these tasks toward these positions. So all of these courses kind of feed into prerequisite requirements for different positions. And those go from kind of your crew member or basic wildland firefighter level to squad boss, which is a leader of a team of three to seven firefighters, to crew boss, which is a leader of a 20 to 25 person team, um, or engine boss. So that's a, that's kind of called the single resource boss level where you're in charge of a single resource on the fire line, whether that's an engine or, uh, or a crew or uh, you're running dozers or any other kinds of things. And then after that as uh, incident commander. So that's someone who's in charge of a wildfire. And then after that, and the federal system is burn boss, and that's the, the federal burn boss uh, level. That's a moderate complexity, and that usually takes people like 12 years and mm. some wildfire experience and quite a bit of wildfire experience and prescribed burn experience to get to that qualification. Um, but the state, California, and, wait, and you are, but you are a burn boss, right? I'm going for my final evaluation okay. after 12 years of working my way diligently toward that uh, for that federal burn boss qualification in a week. Okay. So, I just want to be able to introduce you as Sam Burnboss right. Burn Contrary. It is yeah. such a great title. Watch watch out for Sam. He's a fed now. I'm a <laughs> federal <laughs> Burnboss. <laughs> um, but California, uh, because we had this issue of 
you know, we have the need for prescribed fire outside of federal lands. We have a lot of private lands and non-federal lands that are in need of prescribed fire. And there wasn't any separate qualification system for for doing that. And the federal qualification system requires so many years and so many uh, years also of wildfire experience that the state uh, had Senate Bill SB, like SB 1260 laid, laid out the requirement to create a state certification system for burn bosses. And that happened uh, around 2018, 2019. I was on the cadre for that. And we, we set up a certification system that says, you know what? Uh, the fire agencies are going to be there. Uh, the, the, you know, the state and local fire agencies are going to be on these burns and be ready to respond. And so we don't need our burn bosses to have this amount of wildfire experience. It doesn't need to take 12 years for someone to diligently put fire on the ground. Um, so let's come up with a certification that allows for people who don't work for a federal agency and don't have a decade of wildfire experience to plan and organize burns and lead those in a diligent manner. And so that's a new certification system. And that one uh, doesn't require any wildfire experience for people to get it, but it does require a series of those other courses that I mentioned that my training, that our program teaches. Um, and then it requires some experience and a task book evaluation from a qualified state certified burn boss. So who's, who's taking these certifications from fire forward can, you know, any of us sitting at this table sign up for a class? How does that, how does it work? I know that you've done a lot of work with like North Bay Jobs with Justice and yeah. different like native groups and stuff like that. So you talk about that a little bit, but how does, you know, Joe Schmo uh, <laughs> start this process? Yeah. Um, so like I said, uh, we have that 700 person community. We've trained up 500 ish of those people to basic wildland firefighter. And that really is like a, uh, we put out an announcement once or twice a year saying, hey, we're going to teach this basic wildland firefighter class. You need to take these prerequisite classes online. You need to go take a fitness test and then uh, you can come like be in this field day and we'll issue you a certificate. And then people get experience on the ground from that. And it really is open to anyone who's interested in doing that um, because we believe you know, based in the fact that we live in a landscape that depends on people to steward these lands with fire, uh, fire belongs in the hands of the people. And so giving people the proper skills and training to be able to do that diligently is an important part of creating a, a better future in this state. Um, so we, we offer that training. And then once people get experience with that basic wildland firefighter qualification, they become eligible to apply for those other courses that we teach that help build that experience and build them into leadership positions. So uh, we have a fellowship program that we're finishing the second year of right now, where people who work for other partnering orgs and agencies, mostly land management orgs and agencies, can commit to a 300-hour professional development series over the course of one year with our program. And over that one year, we bring them from, uh, you know, having been on a number of prescribed burns, but still kind of in that early stage, they're, they're competent and comfortable on the fire line in that crew member level. And they want to build their skills to become a state certified burn boss. And they commit to that 300 hours. And over the course of a year, we teach them a series of workshops and trainings and all of those courses to get them from comfortable on the fire line to planning, organizing, leading, and implementing their own prescribed burns. 
Um, and we we had 10 people in the first cohort, 15 in the second. We're dropping it down to five because we have other big initiatives uh, coming up in the coming years. So um, yeah, really exciting program. And we've had a lot of success. People are getting jobs that are paying them to do prescribed burning. Um, and people are really seeing like changes in their career paths that are building capacity toward this effort. So we we've obviously had a, a number of fires in the past you know 10 years in california and a lot of those lands well first of all who, who owns those lands it, just in general is it fed state or private kind of the percentages in general and then isn't this the time where now we should be doing prescribed burns on them to manage them because we did Places such a poor time all, that have already right, wild, place, wildfire, right. That yeah. have wild wildfired already. Isn't this the time now to go in and start managing it and, and managing it in this way? Yeah. Um, I, I think I was listening to your podcast episode with Dr. Kimberly Nicholas, and she said, you know, it's more expensive to take care of a problem after it's already happened than it is to be on top of it before. Um, that's really true in our region with wildfire. So, um, there are parts of the state and certain wildfires where they burn and it really just like kind of it hits the reset button and and now we can more easily do subsequent treatments in this region. That's not as often the case as I really wish it was uh, because we have so many re-sprouting trees and re-sprouting trees kind of shift the whole dynamic because while they die on top that dead canopy becomes more fuel. And then those bushes of re-sprouts are oily and it takes forever for that ecosystem to transition back to a forest from a brush field of trees that are struggling to become trees again. Um, so what we end up having to do to reset that and restore that is go in and like basically nudge the process through pruning of those re-sprouts down to just three or four stems. So all the mm. energy goes into it. Yeah. Yep. Trying to get it to shift from brush back to a tree as quick as possible. And that mm. seems to be pretty effective. Um, and then you have to deal with all the dead material that's left standing. So uh, often also cutting those and piling those and burning those. And then once that effort has kind of gotten underway, we're able to pretty effectively use prescribed fire to to keep moving it in that direction. We are playing with, I wouldn't say playing, sorry, that's not the right word. We are working with experimenting Permitted with, play. Yeah. Permitted fire. Yeah. We are experimenting with um, efforts to try to just do prescribed fire as a first entry treatment after those wildfires where we let the fire uh, or the, let the prescribed burn um, kind of kill off some of those brushery sprouts and try to just have that be the way that we reach that same endpoint. Um, it seems like it maybe works. I don't have enough data yet to say it does work. Um, it's a little bit tricky because oftentimes there's not even enough fuel across the surface after those wildfires to carry fire in the timeline that we need right. to knock back that brush. Right. Um, and so it's, it's kind of tricky in between layer. Um, but definitely I would say uh, there's no time like the present for dealing with all of these places, whether it's burned in a wildfire or not. Uh, it's, it's good to be doing this work. What role does invasive species remediation have in California controlled burns? I know elsewhere in the country with autumn olive in particular in the Midwest, that's been a huge mm, yeah. plus. Um, is that a major part of it as well? Yeah, in uh, in California, or at least in this part of California, our invasive species focus with 
fire is really focused largely on grasslands um, and it's improving forage for cattle in a lot of cases and in, at the same time, which is really cool, uh, benefiting those ecosystems. So making more space for our native plants to thrive and for wildflowers to bloom. Um, so if species like Medusa head, uh, goat grass and uh, yellow star thistle, we can really treat those very well. And there's a lot of science by backing it uh, using prescribed fire. Nice. Yeah. So those are some fun ones. And those in, uh, those types of burns are coming right up in you know, late May. We'll be doing a lot of prescribed burns to treat Medusa head, knock back the annual non-native grasses and restore ecosystem health that way. So where should we where will we be working this this spring and summer in Cal like in in Sonoma? I mean, I'm sure you have all these things yeah. planned out. Um, where should we be looking for good fire? Yeah, uh, you could expect to see some good prescribed burns happening uh, late May, early June uh, around the Sonoma Valley. Uh, quite a bit in the Sonoma Valley, we do a lot of those projects. Uh, anything from Sears Point through Sonoma, Glen Ellen, and uh, you know up to the Myokamis area. So, um, you know, Mark West watershed zone. So yeah. that whole string will, will be doing quite a bit in late May, early June, even maybe mid June. And then September we're we're really looking at probably doing some targeted prescribed burning around Northwest Sonoma County. So up in the Fort Ross, Casadero, Stewart's point area. Places that haven't burned since they were logged. Yeah. And then that'll be, you know, using a lot of resources, full time for 10 days to two weeks, just on site, full time, mm. making sure those burns go well. Who do you want to get your message to? Who's your target audience? <laughs> that is a great question. Uh, my inclination is to say everyone, because <laughs> we need everyone on board with this, whether uh, they're help spreading the word of, of the role of fire in California, or they're coming out and putting fire on the ground, or they're telling their nervous neighbor that like, they should support this work um, or they're helping nudge policy. So my, my inclination is to say everyone, but, uh, and everyone has a role to play right in this, in creating the culture shift that we need to see, to see meaningful change across the state and across the West and beyond. Um, you know, immediately in this area, uh, gosh, it's so hard to say not anything other than everyone. Cause you know, like there's the education component, teaching people about this, getting people comfortable with that idea. There's the training component, teaching people to do the work and implement it. There's the, uh, and that may be volunteer labor, people treating their own properties or their neighbor's properties as a reciprocal effort. And then there's workforce development, teaching people how to do this so they can do it as a career, as a profession. Um, and then there's moving the policy forward, moving the, the hurdles that keep this work from happening at pace and scale um, out of the way and getting through those and over those. Um, and then, yeah, like teaching the future generations so everything to like little kids need to be learning about this. Um, Is there a federal counterpart to what you guys do? Uh, so the feds have had a system for prescribed burning for quite a long time, hence the, the 12 year process to become a burn boss in the federal system. Um, <laughs> but it, it, uh, well, but then again, only, it's right, only yeah. 12, you know, <laughs> um, three presidential administrations and 
<laughs> Multiple PhDs later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's the priority here? Hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's hard. Uh, there uh, there are a lot of challenges and hurdles involved in getting prescribed fire on federal land, but they have really good lessons learned from having been doing this a lot in kind of our modern context for quite a while. So we draw in my program, we draw on the knowledge that the feds have built over the last many decades, um, all the time in the ways that we teach, um, and then. And like the certifications that we issue and the standards and expectations we set for diligence and integrity. Um, but then there are other ways of thinking that we incorporate too. That you try to do it better than the way they do yeah. it. <laughs> Bart, I want to kind of go back to what you were talking about. Who owns these vast lands up north of us, um, you know, between here and Eureka? Um, you know, it's a very deep and wide country. Um, well, and I, I guess my my kind of point was, is like, the, I, I was looking to see who's doing the best job. Is it the feds? Is it the state? Is it the local? And just from your comment, Sasha's sounds doing like, the best job. Right. It sounds like the feds aren't doing much. And so then it falls on to the grassroots of your own yeah, the the feds are doing what they can. They're trying and there are really good people in the federal uh, employment agencies that are that are, you know, putting their careers on the line. Sometimes They're not listening. Go ahead. Make, ha make things happen. <laughs> well, <laughs> oh, and then, yeah, yeah, I would say, um, yeah, I think there needs to be a very diversified uh, series of teams with different approaches working to make this change. And the, the feds are a part of that. Uh, you know, the state and local agencies are part of that. And then these cooperative efforts and indigenous efforts are very much a part of that as well. And it's only with all of those voices in the room and all of those folks simultaneously working together to overcome those hurdles that we're actually going to see a meaningful landscape scale cultural shift that means that we can live better here cool. in the future. Thank you. Yeah. In that um, today is 420. Can we talk about smoke a little bit <laughs> sure. and and the difference between good smoke yeah. and bad smoke? Yes. Um, you know, this is a, a wine podcast, ostensibly, um, and certainly everybody's talking about, worried about smoke taint on a regular basis. Yeah. Um, but the smoke from a prescribed fire is very a very different situation than like the smokes that we dealt with in 2020 or, or 2017, like these wines we have in front of us. Yeah. Um, we you talk about that from yeah, and there there are some really great papers out nowadays, uh, really highlighting the differences between smoke from prescribed fires and smoke from wildfires. And I'm so grateful that research has really come forward now. Um, but yeah, when we're doing prescribed burns, we're we're one we're prepping the fuels as necessary, and then we're choosing our weather window and our burn window for the weather and wind that we want to see. And then we're, you know, we're actively managing our smoke. And part of the way that we do that is through our ignition techniques. And um, we're also, it, so that we can, we can actually moderate how much smoke is being put in the air at a time and how well it lifts uh, by the way that we ignite. And then the wind direction that we choose to burn under will kind of disperse it in one direction or another. Um, and then the ceiling height. So, uh, how high the smoke lifts before it kind of mixes and, and disperses all of that goes into it. Um, and then we're also, you know, we're burning these discrete units in these little kind of blips all over the map at a time um, versus these mega wildfires that are one, not only burning natural vegetation, but all sorts of other things that get burned in a, in a catastrophic wildfire that really make that smoke dense and dirty. Um, 
and then you know burning millions of acres right. and not under the weather conditions that allow for that to kind of disperse and move out um, and just in such large quantities that there's no way for all that to disperse and move out if right. it does just land somewhere else that's problematic like yeah. we've experienced here i mean because you, you said something about um earlier on about the fires that you're lighting as sort of the smoke being sort of the advertising that this yeah. work is happening um and you know i know that our industry people hear that and and they get really yeah. worried yeah. Um, but I think the the dispersion is really an interesting point um, because it's the smoke that sits yeah. and when it sits and what burned and how fresh it is and all these things that, you know, we're learning about smoke damage and what it does to the grapes. But certainly those are those are factors, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, different ecosystems and uh, levels of degradation in different forests have different amounts of smoke that they put out as well. And we can measure that. That's measurable. And as part of our smoke management, when we submit our smoke management plans, we're measuring the particulate matter that we're expecting to have come off of the fuels that we're burning. And when we're burning in grasslands, that that smoke is very light, very quick to disappear because those grasses are so thin. We call them, you know, one hour fuels or fine fuels. They um, that they just burn so fast and that smoke disappears. So uh, we get that smoke to lift and it's very wispy, very like light and it disappears so fast. So right. all of those burns that we're doing in that late May, early June period, that's that really quick dispersing, um, you know, within 10 minutes after ignitions are done, there's no smoke left. Right. So basically you're waiting for those grasses to go to seed so you can so, and dry up like they do in late May, no matter what. Yeah. how much rain we get that's yeah. what it looks like around that June, time right? yeah we're usually we're trying to catch it before if we're burning for invasive species we're catching it while those seeds are still on the plant okay. but the right. grasses are generally dry because once seeds drop off the plant and hit the soil surface then there's not enough heat from the flame on the soil surface to kill them um, in grass okay yeah so so we're trying to hit if we're trying to kill medusa head for instance which is a one that Nasty. lots of ranchers don't want yep so those are uh, like goat heads that'll like pop your bike tire too. Is that what they're? No, that's Ooh. that's the other one. Yeah, I wonder if goat grass would pop a bike tire. Maybe I don't know, yeah. but but both of they look similar. Um, but they they just kind of get stuck to your pants, and the cows won't eat it because it has a high silica content. Bike tire? <laughs> that would be pretty impressive. No, I've ridden. Uh, I was I was, I was a kid yeah. riding yeah. on the former railroad tracks that went by like. Spastiani Winery, mm-hmm. and it was there was like four of us, and we were all on our bikes, and we went through a patch of of goat heads, is what I call it, yeah. and all of us, all you know, two each, two tires each bike. Oh my gosh, eight, sixteen tires. Yeah, I don't even know. Comical. And they all, and every tire was flat. Oh my gosh, we went through a patch of something. Huh. Yeah. I wonder what that was. I don't know, but hopefully you can burn it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we have been. Uh, that's something our program has been doing, which has been kind of fun. Is we. We have a, you know, our, our team is a lot of fire ecologists on it, so we're all a little bit nerdy, and um, we we have a pretty robust monitoring and research program, um, and we're constantly trying to build it and make it more robust, but uh, we get inquiries all the time, so one of the ones that we got uh, last year that we're acting on this year is, can you use fire to treat foxtails, which are the ones that, you know, people oh, get all yeah. worried about their dog's ears right. and all of that, um, and they, I mean, they the are the amount annoying. of money I've given my vet, I should donate it to yeah. you, right? Exactly. <laughs> there you go. Preventative um, so foxtail treatment. Yeah. 
we're doing some foxtail experiments this year, uh, just seeing like, okay, yeah, can you treat foxtail infestations in grasslands using prescribed fire? Um, we're, we're, we've been doing some redwood burning for the last couple of years, learning a lot about how you can burn redwoods in the middle of winter. You can burn redwoods as a rainstorm comes in. They, they are so much more flammable than most of the other fuels we have in this region that, um, like as in terms of when you ignite them, uh, that, you know, there's a lot that we can do in the very wet part of the season to be treating those landscapes when everything else is too wet to burn. Mm. And so uh, we're doing a lot of research and we've we've got uh, academic partners who are supporting that research, trying to figure out what are these burn windows and how well can we accomplish these objectives when we're doing these burns in the middle of winter. Did, did this winter like, was there setbacks from this winter or did it hamper your ability to do the fires that you were hoping to do because it kept raining and never stopped raining <laughs> and then rained some more after that? Yeah, I would say. And then rained again. <laughs> yeah, more rain and more rain. Um, yeah, I, I would say like, Prescribed fire, we're, we're always uh, kind of watching the weather and finding these pockets of windows. And then with all of the ecosystems we have here and the different weather conditions in which they can burn, there's usually something we can do as long as it's not actively dumping rain. Um, so we were set back on, I would say, like really our like oak woodland burns this year didn't really get to happen because of all the moisture um, and some other forest burns. But uh, quite a bit of redwood burning got done across Sonoma County this year, even with all of the rain, because there were those pockets of dry spells right. in between. Sun came out occasionally. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Someone out there is listening is saying, what does that mean? A redwood burn? Can you be a, a little short explanation? Are we of what actually that burning means? redwood trees? Oh, yeah. Okay. So <laughs> um, there are prescribed burns that exist where we are trying to kind of uh, burn the canopy because those ecosystems are adapted to a full regeneration from the ground. So chaparral is one of those. Um, or if there's been an invasion of an ecosystem by a different ecosystem, which happens across kind of the Midwest quite a bit, you're trying to kill eastern red cedars that are growing in the tall grass prairie. Here we have our version of that in the uh, the coastal prairie, which is a really diverse uh, and very threatened ecosystem. We get encroachment due to lack of disturbance by grazing or fire of coyote brush and then Douglas fir trees. So we are trying to actually, in those cases, kill the brush, kill the fir trees and reopen these coastal prairies. Um, but in other cases, and this is the most common treatments that we do, I'd say, um, we're like in a redwood burn, in an oak woodland burn, we're trying to burn out the accumulation of dead materials underneath the trees okay. while supporting those mature trees and the kind of intermediate age trees to continue thriving. And we're building resilience so that when we're in the drier season, those trees are better protected. Um, the trees are better spaced, so they're more resilient to drought and they're more resilient to pathogens. Um, and we, we can see just a general ecosystem health improvement by reintroducing fire to the understory. Um, redwoods are a little bit weird and people get a little bit nervous around them. And to your point earlier where you were saying, um, you know, like you can see this patch flare up on a prescribed burn and you're really like, you're kind of worried about it. It looks like they're expecting it. Um, this happens all the time in this uh, effort and especially with redwoods. Redwoods have that really, we're looking at one right here, <laughs> really fibrous bark uh, that's like really hairy, right? It's like gorilla hair or something on the bark. Um, 
if you go to an old growth redwood forest, they all have fire scars looking right. up the trunks. And so they're less fibrous. But if you go to, you know, a second growth forest that's been harvested and clear cut and it doesn't have fire on it, um, all of those trunks are really fibrous. So when we introduce fire, even in the middle of winter, even as rain's coming in, um, the initial look of a redwood understory burn is it burns very short flame lengths, like three inch flames just creeping along in the understory. It looks very peaceful, very beautiful. And then it gets to the bottom of a tree and it licks up the bark of the tree. And pretty soon the the bark is it like has flames going all the way up the trunk. Um, but they're short flames. And what they're doing is they're burning off all that fibrous gorilla hair on on the outside edge of the bark. And then it puts itself out. But if you're someone who's never seen fire intentionally lit and you walk up and you see these redwood trees with flames going all the way up the trunk, that's a little bit nerve wracking, especially if you're trauma. Yeah. But then, so we often have to, yeah, we often have to like, you know, hold someone's hand and be like, it's okay. Watch it. Uh It's okay. We can watch it. And, you know, there are cases where, you know, if we're burning near a neighborhood, we don't even want to let that happen. And so we'll call it at about six feet. We'll put it out and we'll make sure that charring only happens on the bottom. But what that charring is doing is adding resilience to that tree, because then when a wildfire burns through, that gorilla hair isn't there and fire is not going to lick up the same way. We keep fire out of the canopy when it's drier um, and we have a better outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. My dad was a fire control technician in Redwood National Park in 1976. Oh my and gosh. And they had two fires the entire summer he worked there. One was a grass fire caused by uh, campers didn't put their campfire all the way out. The other was about the only way a redwood tree burns in Redwood National Park. It got struck by lightning. It was dead on the inside, burned all the way down, and then fell over. Oh, so yeah. you have a 350-foot-long fire, effectively, <laughs> that you have to put out. But it's amazing to see how once they've actually experienced fire, they're more or less, it's like the bark's made out of asbestos once the gorilla hair burns yeah. off. It's really incredible. Wait, is gorilla hair really what you call it? No, I just, I, that's just the term. No, okay. <laughs> actually, like, that's what they, I have redwood would mulch in the back yard and that's what they call it yeah there's a really okay absolutely Uh, i i totally picked that up from my colleague brian peterson i give him full credit for that term but it's a good descriptor for sure because i've been described that way as well (laughs) (laughs) now it's gorilla hair burn boss right (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) sasha could you speak to the one thing that really struck me doing controlled burns for the first time there is it's slow burn no pun intended slow burn (laughs) adrenaline rush and also there's something incredibly primordial about you know a campfire for one thing but then seeing an entire field mind you controlled with everybody you know on station ready to respond if there are any issues but it's an incredibly powerful thing to see a 10 acre parcel in the process of going through a controlled burn can you speak to that at all yeah um yeah, I, one thing that we see, you know, a lot of the time is people are expecting it to be really intense and chaotic yeah. and, and they show up and we, we try whenever we can to have observer groups on these burns um, and open it up for people to come watch because it's so different I'm from totally what people imagine. Up for that. Yeah. <laughs> We'd love to have you out. Yeah, it's cool. um, yeah what, what it usually looks like is a, a pretty boring and very organized briefing. Everyone kind of moves into place and gets in position. We start burning a little bit at a time. And then it's it's almost this like meditative, orchestrated yes. process of restoring these low flame lengths in a very orderly fashion across the landscape. Um, and, and a lot of the time observer groups get bored and walk away, <laughs> but, but, That's a uh, good thing. yeah, but others are, are, are 
a reaction that we've seen more commonly in recent years with all the trauma around here is that people even in the observer group are are having this like restorative peaceful experience where they're seeing this completely other face of fire uh, on the ground where the, it's like visibly a benefit you can see that these flame links are low there it's just kind of uh, eating its way through those dead accumulated materials it looks like it's tending and you're seeing these people very meditatively and organized in an organized fashion applying that fire and then watching it kind of do its thing and die down and applying more um so it's it's i think it's been very healing for people to get the chance to come out to these prescribed burns um and see what that looks like this other face of fire yeah. um and, and we've kind of talked about it a little bit uh, but I think the primordial aspect of this is is really an interesting thing. Again, can you have a, expand on um, the fact that this isn't a new, you know, there's maybe modern science to it, but it's not new technology. This is something that, you know, native peoples, especially in California, but really across the planet have been doing for, you know, millennia. Yeah. Um, what, you know, what do you drawn from those you know sort of ancient knowledges how would those fires have looked you know in the 1700s in sonoma valley before you know before colonization and, and western expansion um and how would those fires have been different than what you're doing now or is it would have been kind of looked the same but maybe just you know with without red flashing lights yeah <laughs> those are good questions and and definitely you know fire is innate to all of us like the human race uh, is what it is because of our use of fire right, right. I, I, arguably <laughs> there are probably other people who would say because of other reasons where we are, we are fermenting um yeah <laughs> fermenting for, as for, per, for preservation <laughs> there we purposes, go there's like, one uh, and clean water <laughs> well sam you gotta ask how did the natives figure out that a controlled burn Right. That's the I mean, proper that is, thing to what do. Did, how did those fires, yeah. you know, how did they start those fires? How did they control those fires? Maybe they didn't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe, or in you know, different ways, right? Yeah. So um, fire, using fire for tending the landscape and for stewarding uh, cultural resources uh, has many different faces depending on the objectives and the ecosystem you're in. Um, many cultures around the world uh women are the keepers of fire and, and tend using fire, um, in terms of like tending resources. So, um, you know, tending for basketry sprouts, uh, you, you're like burning at the bases of, uh, hazel bushes or other, other, uh, re-sprouting plants and then, uh, burning under oak trees to, to steward acorns. And there are many different ways in which those are controlled, uh, and that may just be the frequency with which fire is being applied to the landscape that's limiting the burn size and then, you know, using seasonality. So um, we do that kind of thing today uh, in certain areas where we use fuel breaks or uh, we use fuel transition. So uh, we may burn a grassland that's at, you know, at the end of summer, early fall, we get a rain, the forest is wet and because it's shady, the understory of the forest stays wet and the very next day as soon as the sun pops out the grass is dry because it's been dry all summer so you can burn the grass and without having a road or a trail um, or a bunch of people digging line 
you can just burn the grass right into the forest and the fire goes out. Mm -hmm. um, and then vice versa in the fall or winter after the, after the grass greens up and you have a gap in the rain, you can burn in the forest and the fire goes out when it hits the green grass, but the forest is dry from the gap in the rain. Um, so you can kind of use these, these seasonal transitions and fuel transitions to control fire without putting in any physical boundaries. That's so um, cool. There are tribes in this region who describe uh, lighting fire in oak woodlands from the bottom of a hill and letting fire burn through the oak woodland and tend it. I would not recommend that nowadays in areas that haven't been treated because they have so much fuel accumulated, right. but it paints such a beautiful picture of how well tended these oak woodlands had been historically um, for that to be a successful method and not kill those trees. Right. So so that's something that I really am, am intrigued by because uh, that's traditional ecological knowledge that really paints a picture of the difference between what we're seeing on the landscape now in our untended oak woodlands and what these oaks look like when indigenous peoples were stewarding them regularly. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's something that, um, you know, we talk about wildlands and these undeveloped places as if the way they look now is the way they've always looked. Right. And, um, that's not the case. These, you know, these lands were tended and managed and stewarded by the people who lived here before, you know, white people did, right? Yeah. And it, I mean, it really speaks to the importance of people on these landscapes and the importance of, and the responsibility that we have if we're going to live here in tending these landscapes that depend on people to do so in order to be in balance and thrive and offer all the suite of ecosystem services we value in right. the landscapes we live in. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, it just blows me away that you can't really burn a redwood. You know, you can, you can actually burn the, the, the gorilla hair. The gorilla hair off. Well, that's when it's wet. So this is why that, that work is important because in the middle of summer or in late summer when it's really dry, they're, and they're very flammable species, that fire is going to burn all the way through the bark or can and can burn into the cambium. And you can still get some like re-sprouting on younger ones, but it seems like from what I've seen, and I need more science on this or more data, um, is that those old growth trees aren't as resilient in those wildfire conditions. Um, the big hot fires. In those big hot fires. So like doing those treatments so that those risks are eliminated for them is really important in those wetter conditions so that you're not having that impact. So when you look at like a, a map of Sonoma County, and it sounds like, you know, the northwest part of the county, you're, you're kind of doing this but if you look at a map of sonoma county do you like draw a line of places that you would like to see burn because i i mean i think about this all the time yeah. you know driving up in 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 moon mountain district in the Mayacamas, going that didn't burn in 17 and really really needs it right uh and especially you know and i think of specifically um the area between moon mountain road down into Agricaliente in the springs that that amazing fire break was built in the middle of 17 that was you know 100 feet wide and scraped mm -hmm. down to the ground and that's where there was amazing fire um flower re-sprouted yeah. in, in 18 and 19 but that whole area that the fire was stopped at that was suppressed below that is now just like is still this like dense shrubby chaparral and that just looks you know like is gonna look like uh, tinderbox come July 4th, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, I definitely do 
you get like engaged a, a in that map exercise? That you dream about and like I point do. To places? I I try to balance it. There's so much work to do now that getting caught up in the dreams of those units <laughs> that would be really hard to make happen in even ten years. Those are your dreams. Can they take away dreams. from the work to do now. So. But but there are cases where, you know, I'm driving through the county or I'm looking at a map and I see something where I'm like, okay, this is really cool. This is a good opportunity. And I do think I could do something about this in the next year or two. And I'll like pull up on X as an app, right? And you can like yes, look yes. at the landowner. I love that app. <laughs> yeah, I'll like look at the landowner. I'll be like, okay, how do I get a hold of this landowner? And uh, oh. I'll, there have been cases where I've reached out to people and said like, hey, yeah, let me bring it up. Do you right. I got yeah. it. I have it on my phone. I yeah. pay for, pay for the hit. subscription. Yeah. It's yeah, useful. Too. Here's my hit list. Yeah. yeah. So so there are cases where I definitely do that, and I try to I try to mostly stay in the realm of like, okay what are ones that are actually feasible that I could make happen in the next couple of years? I know that the county is working on, you know, like the big long-term plans for pre-fire efforts. And so for me, while they're working on those long-term plans, I want to be getting things happening now. Like we don't have time to be waiting for those dream units. So let's, let's have kind of an, a, a, a slight eye on the future toward those dream units. And I want our program to be, be moving toward that landscape scale, big, important treatments and prioritization. And I, I don't want that to hinder us getting as much done as possible. Now. How is fire forward expanding? Yeah. Uh, rapidly is one. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, we launched in 2017, um, we did our first prescribed burns. We, I started with Audubon Canyon Ranch in 2015 um, and immediately started planning our first cooperative prescribed burns. And it took until May 2017 for us to get those on, on the ground. And it was this enormous effort the first time that this permitting process had been used recently in this region at all. Um, and we identified that there was a huge need to build capacity for this effort. So we started doing that, um, built a gear cache and uh, started training people building momentum. Um, and, uh, you know, we started in a three-sided carport where we had a bunch of, uh, gear hanging on the walls and, uh, you know, it did not last hey, long. So did Apple. Yeah. They started in a garage too. So. <laughs> nice. Perfect. Um, yeah. And then the, the team started growing. We, uh, and we, we had kind of this core team of planners and coordinators and uh, people teaching these efforts. And then now we uh, we have an apprentice crew. We, we built our fellowship program. So that was a, kind of a next level of expansion, investing in people who are already doing stewardship work by giving them professional development. And then uh, now we have an apprentice crew. So these are folks who have a one-year paid full-time position learning how to do this process within our team um led by a crew lead who has a decade of really great wild and fire background and then uh where we're hoping to go is really standing up uh an entire module so looking at uh, what would it look like if we built a prescribed fire module that is uh, highly skilled in ecology and stewardship and prescribed fire and fuels and knows these ecosystems and knows the players and cares about doing this work well um, and focuses on prescribed burning as its core effort. And so we're, we're working on standing up those modules as that next piece because ultimately if we're going to see a, a, a pace and scale shift in this work, we're going to need people with careers dedicated to putting this good fire on the ground. Um, 
it, it's not going to be able to be sustainable or grow as much as we need, need it to just through volunteerism. And volunteerism alone as the method creates an equity gap. Not everyone has the resources to take vacation days or right. come volunteer uh, their time or spend the money for boots uh, just to volunteer, or spend the money on all of the and time on all the professional development it takes to come out on the fire line. So if we build career paths in this field, we can shift the culture and we can fix the equity and we can put our money where our mouth is, balancing this suppression, many millions of dollars that go into the billions. paramilitary suppression billions. piece. Yeah, thank you. Um, with some effort going in toward, uh, toward this like institutionalizing prescribed fire as a career path. Are there other groups in California that do the same thing you guys are doing? Yeah, similar. I'd say because we're all kind of grassroots nonprofit efforts, we all have a slightly different culture, a little bit of a different bent. Um, I'd say that the Nature Conservancy has been kind of building this cooperative burn effort uh, nationally for a while now. Um, and then in California, uh, uh, there's Fire Forward, there's uh, the Mid Klamath Watershed Council has been doing this work for quite a while and uh, doing it really well. And they've been a huge mentor for me as well in leading this program. And then um, the Hayfork Watershed Training Center is another one that has a fire program. So uh, Mid Klamath Watershed Council, Watershed Hayfork Training Center, ourselves, um, just in the last few years, also the Tribal Eco Restoration Alliance. So these, these partners have kind of been forming and building and then teaming up over the last decade or so to really try to start making a difference in this effort. And we're all learning from each other all the time and listening. So three part question here. Um, and, but it's all about how to support fire forward. One, if you want to become, you know, s s trained, how do you do that? If you're a landowner in Sonoma County or in the region that you're, how do we how do you access and and start the process of doing that and then three uh if you're none of those things or don't want to be on a fire line um or don't have land but you're in you know somewhere else in the world listening to this show going the future of the wine that i drink depends on good fire not bad fire uh, how do you support your efforts yeah um great question so uh, our training courses, we're, we're just about to set it up so that all of our courses through the end of 2024 are going to be listed on the website and people will be able to see when they can apply to each of those courses. What's the web address quick? Uh, yeah. Fireforward.org should okay. get people there. <laughs> Hopefully that's easy enough. And they're on the, and they're on the gram. Yes. Fire dot forward. <laughs> we are on the gram. Um, yeah. So fireforward.org, people should be able to see our, our course list through end of 2024 and when they can apply and how. And then on that same webpage, uh, we also have a link to a site visit form. So people site visit like request survey, basically. So people can put themselves in there. Um, we have a lot of burns on our plate right now. So it may take a little bit for us to get back to people on that site visit form, but um, we, we do make our way through that. And uh, that's a great way. And I'd say for anyone putting themselves on that, if if people can do anything about like creating an initial map of their roads and trails and property and give that to us as part of that effort, that really helps nudge things along to the next step. Um, 
usually I'll say as part of that, we're looking for, um, you know, mid slope roads do uh, mid slope roads and trails do not make good control lines. So we're looking ideally for people who have enough property or a well situated situated property that control lines may be on the top or bottom of uh, topography. It's not always required, but sometimes it's really important. Um, and then finally for, uh, yeah, supporting us, we absolutely like private donations are a huge help to our program and allow us to have the flexibility to really do this work and be nimble and identify hurdles and pivot and knock them down. Uh, so donating to the program is hugely helpful as well. Right Cool. Fire forward, and how, how can they donate? Uh, do you have Venmo set up? Do you have, you want to check? <laughs> I mean, what? Yeah, through the website, um, Ottoman Canyon Ranch's website and the fireforward.org uh, platform, which are all connected since we're a program of Ottoman Canyon Ranch. Um, that's that's a great way to donate. There's a, a give now button, I think, on there, or donate button. Excellent. Yeah. And just as cash shows up, cash <laughs> the neighborhood pub. He's so cute. <laughs> He'd be a good fire dog. Yeah. Yeah. He's not a Dalmatian, but I could see him riding around <laughs> a fire truck. Absolutely. <laughs> Do they still have those anymore? I know they have house dogs. I don't know. Funny. You know, I've the, never the seen like any in the truck, the classic <laughs> Dalmatian in a fire truck thing. I don't know. If, did that ever really exist? My dog, Andy, was a Dalmatian and he ran away. And I'm sure that he joined went a to fire, the fire department. department. <laughs> <laughs> ran away to join the fire department. That's perfect. <laughs> been telling myself that for 50 two years oh. yes oh andy <laughs> so sasha any questions we have not answered yeah, anything that asked? we you want to talk about that we haven't figured out how to ask Ooh, <laughs> nothing's coming to mind those are great questions i think i got everything on barbara's list it. that she sent me <laughs> barbara's the producer yeah. she said over there drinking wine on her eye oh about what? oh the, the yeah the armstrong wood that's actually a great story that we talked about when we met. Oh, yes. yeah. With, yeah. In, in regards to 2020, right? Yeah, that was um, a really neat opportunity. So uh, during the that lightning storm that happened and then we had the, the complex of lightning fires, uh, I... I was in a, a wilderness first responder training when that all started and got this flood of emails from the community of people that we've trained saying, hey, we're hearing that there is a shortage of firefighters and you gave us the training to be firefighters. How can we go get involved and help? Uh, I think, you know, in one day of sitting in this first responder class, I, I got something like 65 emails from people <laughs> asking if they could like do something to help with the firefighter short shortage. Um, and so that inspired me. I got kind of excited about like the, the groundswell grassroots interest in making a difference. So uh, we reached out to Northern Sonoma County Fire District and uh, they, they've been pretty good partners for quite a while now. And we coordinated to... Uh, create a 20 person uh, type two hand crew. So a formal qualified firefighting hand crew to go out and be part of that uh, firefighting effort on the Wallbridge fire. So wow. um, our team fire forward organized the crew and geared them up. And then we uh, all got hired on through Northern Sonoma County fire district and went out and responded. And we had this really cool, because of this grassroots community effort, we had this really cool mixture of 
folks who are all fireland trained and qualified and have good experience, but are also uh, archaeologists, indigenous <laughs> peoples, uh, biologists, botanists, ecologists, all of these different things. Um, so we had this really special additional set of skills and we're able to uh, get kind of prioritized toward very ecologically relevant assignments. So we ended up the first week of that fire in Armstrong Redwood State Park, supporting protecting those old growth yeah. trees um, and yeah, doing like ecologically sensitive suppression through the, the state park. And then in the second week, we ended up out in this area called the Cedars, um, which has really beautiful, rare, um, like Sergeant Cypress and a bunch of rare manzanita and rare wildflowers that grow in that really uh weird soil system out there and I don't remember the details of the soil so um, that was a really cool assignment getting to organize this community of people who just wanted to help I think 43 people from the community filled spots on that 20 person crew over the two week period um, and I think it really gave people a way to plug in so that they weren't feeling helpless right. um, while also giving back and contributing it's awesome yeah fantastic cool stuff Absolutely. See more good smoke. Very, very eye opening. It's, it's really amazing. Thank you so very much. This was a good Thanks 420 for show, me. right, John? Dr. Sasha. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> All about good smoke. Yes. Sam. Good smoke. Burn Boss Couture. I like I it. it. Man, you got to have it. a card made. Right? Right. Oh, get some new cards built, printed up before I have any qualifications. Right. That's pretty much on brand. Perfect. <laughs> I've been burning most of my life. <laughs> <laughs> hunk of burning love yeah. <laughs> I mean you could just go on and, and on. It's, yeah. so, it's so uh, and the nine. fuel is heavy for the puns that we could come out <laughs> uh, alright thank you so much Dr. Yeah. Sasha thank you so much, much for having appreciated. me much appreciated yeah, this is beyond my expectations on yeah. this one this is awesome thank you yeah. uh, truly yeah. shout outs Total yeah time. anything for you guys events coming up I have um, April 29th, the Garage Tease Tasting oh, right. here in Sonoma. Uh, there's still some tickets available. I don't know. There's like 35 or 40 wineries all under 1,000 cases. Some past um, past guests of the podcast will be there. Uh, Darling Wines. Uh, Casey Graybell, Graybell will be there. Um, the Garage uh, Tease uh, is under 1,000 cases? Yeah. He's good. He may, has like 2,000 fo Instagram followers for every case of wine he makes or something. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to talk to him about who his followers are. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I got that. And um, I'm actually, I can't believe I'm finally saying this. I actually have labels coming next week. I oh my goodness. promised them. Nice. So all of this wine that I keep drinking without labels <laughs> is so good. Shiner. I'm going to be able to share it with some people, hopefully. Yeah. Somebody spotted a shot from my post yesterday. Somebody spotted a Shiner on there. Oh, that, that, that the, uh, the Zin. Yeah. The Zin from Marshall. Yeah. Right. Ah. That was the blend. The red blend. Yeah, that was the red blend. That was a great bottle of wine. <laughs> That'll be next week's show. Next people. week's show, right? We're going. We went out. Of, well, we went out of order so that we could have uh, the Good Smoke show. Nice. That's exactly right. this week. Yeah, and it's That's you know awesome. the day before Earth Day. The show drops the day before Earth Day. Perfect. And we're recording on four twenty. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> oh, and then I'm. I well, and then um, Chef Cycle is coming up in 
God, I, it's less than three weeks away. Sam, Whoa. I don't know where you are in your um, um, kind of thoughts about it, but turns out I'm bottling that week. Ah, good plan. Saved, <laughs> saved by the reprieve bottling bell. Thank gosh. <laughs> so I will be donating and probably not yes. participating. Uh, yes. Thank That's you. Right. Thank you, you know Eric what? and Caitlin. You know what? All that really matters is the donating. So it's, how can people do? Well, there'll be links on all the Instagrams and yeah. Maybe we'll send out to the email lists. Yeah. Donate. Um, donate. Uh, no kid I, hungry. It's, it's, link, it's linked on my uh, my Instagram and my Facebook. Um, we've reworked our team now. We have Chef Dusty Estes is um, kind of somehow. Butcher Baker Bottler. Yeah, Butcher Baker Bottler. Such a better um, team name than the previous so, one. <laughs> so much better. But the previous one was a lot of fun for the little short yeah, amount of time. It, it had history. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> That's it here. All right, man. Uh, way in advance, but way. we're going to start promoting it now because it's going to such a big deal. Uh, September 17th. It's part of our Grenache Day celebration. Tacos oh, yeah. Duron, uh, Grammy Award winning uh, jazz vocalist Catherine Russell, who is also happens Ooh. to be a family friend, changed All my right. brother's diapers and such. Uh <laughs> At the barn on Denmark. I'm sure he, he wants everybody to know that. Yes, he does. Well, my brother, he's a very public person. He likes to talk. And, you know, oh, very, yeah. I've noticed. Uh, have you ever even met him? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Once. Once. Or okay. twice. That's, yeah. That sounds all right. Uh, so, yeah, Catherine Russell, September 17th, the Denmark Street Barn. Uh, make your travel arrangements around it. The ticket link will be out soon. Um, and that'll be all part of a Grenache weekend celebration. Grenache Day is... Uh, the 15th of September, Friday the 15th. Excellent. There's going to be a big dinner. I don't know if John Toolsy started to pr promote it yet, but, I, but we're he doing gave it. us he gave us the, well, the thumbs up to start promoting. Okay, so Saturday night, a sort of secret out in the field kind of uh, dinner. dinner party where you buy a ticket and then you find out like the morning of where you get to go. Right. Um, that'll be all Grenache. Um, and we'll be doing something Friday in the tasting room, uh, hanging out, drinking Grenache all weekend. Right. And uh, then Friday night. Yes. I make Grenache, uh, and Bart makes Shannon Blanc. Right. It's, it's. And Grenache. And Grenache. <laughs> From the Rossi Ranch. The Tokalon of Grenache. The Tokalon of Grenache. <laughs> you know what I loved about that? It was the Napa Valley. Uh, Vintner is who said it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So we can get away with repeating it. Right. <laughs> we exactly. couldn't have said it on our own. No. But Tony Biaggi, <laughs> right. famous Napa hotshot right. winemaker, hotshot, see, <laughs> yeah. uh, can say Tokalon for Grenache, and we just go, yes. Yes. We'll, we'll take that to yeah. the bank. <laughs> and, in it, and in a couple years, it may not have been Tony that said it. It might have been somebody else. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to The Winemakers. We will see you next week. Special thanks to Tristan for sitting in for Guest Brian. host. Thanks. Sam Burnboss. Burnboss. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go burn and some boss right now. Dr. Right. Sasha Berlin. Thank you so very much. Thanks and Barbara, me. thanks again. Our producer, you. executive yeah, producer, Barbara absolutely. Gorder. Barbara. <laughs> All right, kids, peace and love. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs> <laughs>